Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. The very best of last week's rugby coaching webinars and podcasts, reviewed by host Phil Flewellyn and his special guests. And welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. It is a pleasure to have you with us as we explore the world of sports coaching and rugby. Three new coaches this week. So, gents, if you'd like to introduce yourselves, where you're from and your current role. Hi, I'm Aaron James. I live in Bath. Uh, I'm currently head of rugby at Bath University. Uh, Current assistant coach to England Student Sevens. And formerly, as I've known all the guys on the panel through England Students Fifteens. Uh, head coach. Hi, I'm James Farnden. Um, live in Wiltshire. Currently work at UK Sport as a performance advisor, and currently coach some England student sevens in the in the summer season. Uh, and in the past, have worked with all these guys with England students fifteens. Hi, I'm Paul Bertie. Uh, currently, uh, I'm a coach at Durham University, and I'm also England students manager. And that's how I know all of you guys. Awesome, gents. Absolute pleasure to have you on. Uh, as I said earlier, lots, lots of uh, in-jokes, but it'll be brilliant to catch up and, uh, and talk about some of the student stuff as we get through some of the content as well. So my, uh, my terrible joke for this week, what did the cowboy say when he fell off his horse? I've fallen and I can't giddy up. There we go. Moving swiftly on. Uh, <laughs> for anyone that doesn't know the format, uh, we'll just introduce the topics um, briefly and then a little bit of a roundtable discussion with some questions. Uh, don't forget to check out the blurb for the links to all the content that we discussed. So we're going to kick it off with Aaron. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, this week, mate? Well, it started um, last week in the rugby paper was um, the the proposals for a, a revamped uh, English championship in the professional game. But as it's gone through the week, it seems to have gathered more momentum with um, some more social media on it and linking to the premiership. Um, really what I wanted to talk about is, is uh, as a personal view, I, I think I really do hope um, after the, you know, the, the news of the championship mid-season with a cut in funding, that uh, the, the, the rugby championship in England does stay and the, and the whole value to the game um, of uh, around the dream of professional rugby uh, down to the lower down to the lower ranks. What um, I know the Rugby Pass put an article out this week that kind of explained that because they'd seen the document and they said they were kind of talking with universities and things. What what was your take on that? Um, you don't have to say, but have, have you been part of those discussions as a leading university? Is what what are your thoughts on replacing academies with um, the regional hubs? Look, look, I you know there was more information come out. Firstly, um, not to my knowledge, because I'm on furlough, uh, that we've been contacted at, at Bath, but that doesn't mean there may have been some discussions around the wider thing. Um, Probably, as we do, we'll do some more digging next week to see, you know, who has been consulted. But, you know, there's been lots of rumours and the link up for a while right through the years. So, you know, we don't know what's fact and what's what's speculation. But, yeah, look, 
you know, if, if it, it, there's some interesting stuff in there, really, to the, to the pathway through the game, um, in, in my view. Go on, yeah, expand on that then for me. What, what are your thoughts on what they've presented so far? Where, where do you see it being positive? What, what do you see as the pitfalls? Well, I, I think overall, you know, in, in my, you know, working with um, particularly the, the university game in, in particular, England students, uh, lately I, I've had benefit of working with the um, Dawson Wilts senior county squad. I've looked at, you know, and, and talked down lower in the academy. And one thing that's really dawned on me right across and all those, uh, all those sort of spaces is, is the dream of playing, or A, for your country, but secondly, uh, the chance of playing professional rugby at some stage is massive. And, you know, we, we may know that it's for a number or a large number, it may not be realistic, achievable, but that, that whole dream of, and, and that whole motivation around, I could become a pro rugby player, and the best probably link into that is the championship. Um, the other links in is, you know, I could play at Twickenham for the county. That's massive for me. Um, and, and the whole wider aspect around participation and, and the motivation around that is, is massive. And that's where I think it's led by, uh, A, the championship for the professional side. But I, I certainly think England's, you know, the RFU's initiatives of having students, having counties, having finals at Twickenham is, 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 is probably, I'll use the word underestimated, but I can't find a better word. I'll, I'll throw this out to, to all the guys. Um, well, what do we think the purpose of the championship actually is? Because this seems to be a little bit of a stumbling block in terms of where it sits within a pathway, the pathway, uh, depends how you look at it. What are our actual thoughts on what the function of the championship takes? I was particularly interested in uh, the idea of only 10 of the squad being over 24, I think it was, which I think would fit into what Aaron's saying about um, people's dreams and aspirations of playing professional rugby. Because it, I suppose if you see uh, the, the only professional league that the RFU run being dominated by maybe guys who've already played premiership rugby and are in the 30s or something, it must be quite daunting for young young people to think they can get in there. So I was quite interested in that proposal. I know they're all just proposals at the moment, but that that I mean, you've got to have some older age group in that group because you might have you know certain positions that you just don't have anybody at the right age group to play and stuff like that. So I was quite interested in that. I don't know what Aaron thought of that. Yeah, I've seen that. Having been partly involved in academies in the past, they've, they've talked about an, an under-23 professional league. Um, I don't know the rules about, you know, employment law, about, you know, um, what you can do around that. Speaking from an old man um, <laughs> and the whole, you know, the, the, there's, there's law around can you put in somebody's professional career a, a, an age limit Probably that that's goes into wider things. I, I don't know. That's beyond me. Um, but yeah, certainly, uh, I, I, I think, you know, having been involved with, uh, you know, closely with Bath Academy and, and discussions, and, and again, not all fact, most of what's come up, I've, I've, I've sort of heard before, but not all. 
packages into one. You know, it's, it, it says uh, ring fencing the the premiership again today on the on the on the news. So, you know, more people know about it than than me, uh, and 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 more people in positions. But there must be something to it. I remember an interview. So Nigel Melville, um, when he was leading the RFU, talked, and I and I, I've looked really hard. I can't find the interview online, but he definitely spoke about their thoughts being there's too many professional players in the game in England. So I think there's something like 1,200 pros across the the top leagues, um, and in other countries, so Ireland, New Zealand, Australia, there's something they work it out to it's around about 800. So their thoughts were actually, do we need to, to start to shift that? And, and he kind of, it, it's funny how it comes around because his initial plan, he talked about linking all the championship teams up with the premiership team as a feeder and everything else. And everyone slated it. And then suddenly this has come out, which by the by seems to be very similar, seems to be very much along those lines. And from what the, the news articles are saying, the championship clubs have supported it and are are pushing for it so it, it's an interesting whether that's because of the funding changes or whether that's because of covid i, I don't know i'd be interested to find out but do, do you think that argument has merit is is there a, too much money being spent on professional players in the game and it, it does need to be streamlined and and just kind of rework so it is a a feeder system moving forward well i i mean, i think it's a fascinating area of the game to discuss and I hadn't read that article until you sent it through, Phil. So some of the detail behind it was really interesting to read some of that, especially some of the commercial and the TV rights aspect. But um, I guess on your on your question, my understanding was, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not close enough to it, but correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought the decision around the championship was based about around the the kind of the KPIs, as it were, in terms of players moving up. And so I on your question about purpose, Phil, I look back and I just think it's probably been whether I suppose it's been a bit of a stepping stone for players, hasn't it? I suppose it's been a bit of a holding ground for players who aren't quite ready for premiership, but I don't know in terms of the KPIs, but it did make me reflect on, I think this area of the game and on Paul's point about the age groups, it's an, it's an, an area of the pathway that I think I wouldn't say convoluted, but you've obviously now got a really strong Bucks Super Rugby product. You've got a, a set of really strong universities. We know that we've seen a lot of students in the past and currently go into the championship, but obviously you've then got Academy, A-League, um, some players that go to the Prem as well. So you've got quite a bit going on in, in, in that area, haven't you? So I do think it needs a bit more a coherent approach and it just made me reflect ultimately on the role of strong university programs and Buck Super Rugby really in, in this space because I guess whatever happens with the championship, we all see the Buck Super Rugby product become stronger and stronger. And I guess when I was at Loughborough, we, our aspiration was always to be in the championship. Now that never happened, but obviously if you um, look at Hartbury, they've probably got a model where you know we, we all know that they're in a university, but I don't know how many players over 24 they've got, or I don't know. It's just quite an interesting debate, isn't it? The other bit that was interesting from a student perspective as well was the, um, the, the proposal regarding the draft, similar to the NFL in America. So, um, yeah, I wasn't really sure from the articles I've read how that would work exactly, but um, I, I could see a couple of good things about it and a couple, maybe a bad thing. So if, 
for instance, if some of these players were in book super rugby teams and obviously Aaron Leeds, one of those teams, um, you, you might have them one week and then you wouldn't have them for three weeks because they would be needed in the championship. And then you might only have them for one year because I think it said after one year, they have to stay wherever they are in the cluster academy or whatever you want to call it for one year and then they can be put into the draft and you might lose them after one year and you've you know spent a bit of time on them and actually the player just leaves so that that could be difficult because you, you the the players that seem as if they could move between different clubs quite quite a lot during one season and then after maybe one season they could be gone you know but others might stay for four years before they get picked up in this draft, I don't know, but I didn't know the exact detail of it from what I read. I, I think that's a really good point. It, that was the interesting one, whereas it says if they remodeled the academy system, it says linked or with or based with universities, but it doesn't actually stipulate from what was in the article around would they have to be studying, or is it just a case of if if they say one of the ones in the southwest was was at Bath, is that just they're on site because? they're paying for facility use and they're linking up and that you know there's a there's a lot of sense in basing it at a university but i think that the, the real key part of that is do they have to be students because i think there's suddenly a, a number of barriers if they've got to be signed up to courses um you know your yeah. group unis aren't, aren't just going to let people rock through the door just because it's a it's an rfu academy so I, I don't i don't know the specifics of that that's definitely a, a really personal point i think Bill, on your on your purpose, um, your purpose question, I suppose we're we're probably because we're all we've worked in the student game quite heavily. So I guess there's a there's a wider what the champion where the championship fits to the wider game. But then we're probably naturally talking and gravitating towards the the relevance of the student game within that because we've worked there. But I guess that debate around where it fits. Yeah, I agree with that. I think to, to answer your point, Phil, is, you know, it, it could work, but the, the rules of Buck Super Rugby is you've got to be doing 50% of a degree. And, you know, things have changed in the current situation now about how that works. So in the past, it was, you need to be a bit more face-to-face. -face. Now, you know, where is that going to be after the world's changed? Um, you know, you're certainly seeing a lot more, and that's, you know, not only from my experience, but talking to all the other Super League co uh, um, coaches, we're starting to see a lot more academy guys at universities. Now, whether we've got them for one game or, or, or 21 games, uh, that's dependent on the person. But, you know, for instance, we're, we're you know, we're, we're and, it, and it's, um, we publicise it a lot. We've got a really strong link with Bath Rugby, which we're a hell of a proud of. We've got pretty much all, well, we've got all but two of their new academy guys coming to the University of Bath, which is brilliant. And those other two, you know, university doesn't suit them and they want to take another education path. So it's about the person. But, you know, I'm not alone in Loughborough. Uh, Exeter is a, is, a, is a great example. We're seeing, you know, Cardiff Mets, um, development, you know, of, of players, well-known, obviously Hartbury, et cetera, et cetera, right up Durham, the whole, whole lot. But you're actually seeing now is the whole state of professional rugby is a lot more students are going, I want to be in the academy, but I want to also be doing a degree because I don't know the length of that. And the realities come more so in the last four or five years and, you know, I say about our relationship with Bath, but we've got a very good relationship with, you know, Chim at Quinn's, 
uh, Worcester, uh, Bristol, maybe because they're local, but you know, um, in Gloucester, looking at players to come to us because it suits them as their degree. So we're starting to see a wider, um, wider relationship, as I call it. And I, I think you mentioned there all but two of the Bath guys are at your place and uni doesn't suit them. That would be my big question for this proposal. If they're saying they've got a study, which I think we, you know, we've had endless, countless conversations around how important that, that is as part of the process. What, what do you do with those guys? I don't think we want to get to a stage where we're forcing people to, to undertake degrees and go into an education system that, that doesn't suit them just because that's where a new academy is going to be based and that's their only route to pro rugby. So I think, I guess, yeah, there's always going to be more questions from this than answers until it's, it's actually presented. But I do think that poses some, some questions. The other thing that was interesting, again, I'd have to look back at the detail of that article, but um, mentioned about some salary levels for s- certain number of individuals. And I guess, uh, again, Aaron, you're probably closer to this now, but um, I guess when we look at the students that we've had through the system that have gone into the championship or even to prem contracts, that um, I, I wouldn't know exactly how, what level those have been, but clearly there's, um, I guess, some that go to London might might um, combine the two and play for a Nat One or a championship club, as well as maybe doing a job in the city or... Um, play a bit lower to have a job in the city but that's probably one population and then um, some that probably go on very low contracts you know trying to progress and, and, and progress through and move on up higher but it's not for some it's not so hasn't been probably challenge it's probably been quite challenging to sustain a career on a very low salary and either you give up and go and get a job or you persevere um, but it's just an interesting one isn't it for the sustainability of it especially in the current time, times now, it, it might change the whole thing. Yeah, and I agree with that. And it depends on the motivation. Like, you know, I, I, again, the yesterday's sort of thing mentioned, you know, minimum 22 grand. I, I don't know the facts of that, but in my experience, that would be a significant increase for, for a lot of professional guys' contracts from, that, have, that have gone from the student game in the past. Some have gone for that dream of just being a, a professional rugby player. When you look at the maths of, of, of what they're getting, it, it doesn't work. It probably doesn't pay for their flats they're living in. So, you know, I, again, I, I, it's not worth going into the, the, the detail, but it's an interesting point about having a minimum because, you know, some are, are, are well, I know for a fact and speaking to some that are on peanuts, if, if that. Again, the other point, you know, is, is some of the best ways you get a top degree, get an economics degree, go and work in the city of London and play, you know, really good rugby for really good teams that have, that have worked well with students, e.g. Richmond, um, with Steve Hill has been, you know, very strong around students. Is It's a pretty, <laughs> if you can balance it up this, and, and get a bit of money from that, and they're pretty open about how they, their contracts, um, it's a pretty good way of living and playing rugby still semi-pro yeah i agree i I actually found so the the 22 grand came from the the 10 players that the championship club would have from the academy don't count towards their salary cap and then i think they said it's like 600 grand split between 23 which ends up at 22 grand a piece or something like that which so it it kind of intimated that it would only be part-time 
so they they have that which is a you know that's a decent part-time playing contract if you're then only training two or three times a week I guess but what what the uh, well I would presume for a lot of clubs that's what the championship is going to look like this year anyway that kind of part-time basis but the, the bit I found interesting on the money was they were suggesting that a draft pick from the academy into a pro club would go in the top ones would go in on 90k and I was just like that that seems to be if I'm honest somewhat of a waste of money because they're not signing those guys you know if you're a 19 20 year old signing your first senior contract I would suggest it's very unlikely you're going to be signing at Bath on 90k as a 19 year old like that just seemed to be spending money on players that probably don't warrant that kind of investment at that point so it it was just interesting that would be a lot more than I guess most academy players would be on unless you're a you know a real rock star but um, I'm conscious of time but my last question was going to be within that proposed system and and I appreciate we don't know as much as we would like where where would you see sevens fitting because obviously there's been you know some pretty terrible news for those guys that they're not going to have their contracts renewed in August does suddenly having regional academies offer the opportunity to put players in with the sevens program for a stint? Do, do, would the sevens program potentially be included in the draft? What What were your thoughts on how how that could benefit the sevens? Sure, I hadn't, um, I hadn't immediately thought about it when I read it. Actually, Phil, so it's kind of a bit of an on the spot question. But I, my gut response would be that I guess whatever system, um, whatever the pathway looks like moving forward, it it's included as an integral integral part and you might have more fluidity of players and you might actually have, um, I suppose there's been a lot of younger players and student players go through the sevens programme, but maybe the programme um, becomes, yeah, more fluid, more players coming in and out of it um, to provide the opportunity in the player development. But I mean, my overriding thought is it, it stays in, as an integral part of the pathway connected to Buck Super Rugby and connected to the championship, whatever that may look like, um, based on um, something contractually for players to be able to go in and out um, and or stay there for longer, depending on what their development needs are. Yeah, I think it comes down to a couple of things. It's view, you know, New Zealand's view on sevens is different to England's. You know, and Fiji's, et cetera, and, and, and transitioning in and out. Um, maybe that needs to change or may not, you know, that, that's what, again, the, you know, the, the difficulty with sevens, you know, I'm a huge, uh, huge fan, a uh, huge supporter of the whole, you know, process. What Simon Amor's done has been brilliant. Um, and the way he's integrated, you know, not only um, and brought players through Rory McConaughey as a good example, uh, you know, and linked to students, blah, blah. But, you know, I guess from a, from a, a financial point of view, Sevens carries a, a bigger overhead just on its nature and it's always going to be challenged because, you know, versus 15s and, and from a financial point of view and in and, and the professional side. So it's always battling that. But I, I, from a personal point of view, I hope that it still stays in that pathway because it is valuable. It's just less numbers by nature. I suppose that the one other, the one other really quick thing, sorry, Paul, the one other quick thing, Phil, it is an Olympic sport, isn't it? I mean, it, it, if it wasn't, I suppose it changes the view slightly, but um been a Commonwealth sport for quite some time, but they're now an Olympic sport. So it depends on, I guess, the strategy 
whether there's interest, not just least from a player development perspective, but an, an Olympic sport and is, Olymp- is an Olympic sport. It's- and that, that, yeah, I was sat I was in the car yesterday and I was thinking about this and that this, to my mind, would probably be the saviour of sevens, I think, if, if you aligned it. So whether you're pulling, because effectively the RFU would have control over the academy players in these regional setups, so they're not owned by the clubs. And I know the clubs do release players at the moment, but they're still contracted to that club. As I think suddenly you could, as you said, maybe you keep eight or 10, 12 guys on full-time contracts in the sevens and you, you put in another eight or 10 or 12 to make that up as a full-time training squad for a season or they come in and out and it's a little bit more fluid. But if you had a core, you know, a core group of players in the, in the sevens, that's a reasonably small number. Um, I, I do wonder whether this would make a huge difference to that, but frustratingly it wasn't listed in, um, in the document, which I can understand from a championship perspective, but I do wonder whether the RFU would be pushing for for that inclusion or looking at the opportunity. So, yeah, cool. Definitely, as as always with this stuff, way more questions than uh, we've got answers for, but um, very, very interesting. Right, we're going to move it on. James, we're coming to you. What, uh, what were your thoughts this week? Uh, yeah, you, you'd mentioned about content, Phil. I hadn't got anything online, but um, just something, a, a book I probably want to have a look at at some stage um, sooner rather than later would be the book by Ben Mercer. Um, so Fringes, Life on the Edge of Professional Rugby. So I guess it just made me reflect on, um, given that we had the student AGM yesterday and we were talking about the importance of maintaining France uh, and playing French universities in the student rugby calendar for England students every year um, obviously we've all been involved with many French fixtures over the years and it um, so I look forward to reading about the culture of French rugby from Ben's perspective in his book um, but also reflect on I guess not not related to Aaron's point about the championship but going back to the pathway really about the the experience for student players to get a cap against France um, and it's not just, yeah, it's on the field, but off the field. It's the cultural experience of some, for some players that played France twice in a season and um, what that adds to their kind of rugby, rugby diet, as it were. Um, you know, from a personal perspective, as a coach against France, it was always a huge challenge, but also really enjoyable experience given what they throw at the game and what they, you know, the types of crowds and activities they put on around it not least to say it's a tough fixture so yeah it's just to open the floor given all of your involvement as well of where you why you think the French bit of the student program was pretty important what you think it gave to the guys that were involved from from my point of view uh, James one of the biggest things was obviously England students uh, was to provide um, a different experience at a higher level for the players for their development and to play in France particularly against the French was completely different to all of the guys previous experiences of playing I think um, as we all know the French take it very seriously as we do and they will throw anything at it to make sure they win the game they are very very determined to win and I think the the fact that they get crowds for student games of thousands of people when we might get a few hundred that's straight away it's completely different to what they would get in this country generally they were much they seem to be quite a lot bigger than us certainly a few years ago maybe less so now so that was a completely different experience and and talking to the players after games 
um, some of the you know the way the French play is different to what they're used to as well. So I think our purpose of giving the guys the best experience we can uh, to develop them. I think that friend, the French have been by far the best for us for that. I mean, absolutely different, completely different experience for all of us as well as management and coaches as well. Yeah, I agree with that, Paul. I'm smiling away here because I, I, I remember one of the last games we had was, is, you know, it, for every scrum, a prop goes down, um, rubbing his head and the water comes on, you know. So every scrum took about three or four minutes because they, they were just knackered. So that's what they did, stop the game. But what, what locks in mind is we, we were we were over in France and, and, and playing them and uh, we, we went to exit. We went to kick out of our 22 and our, um, our number 10 kicked the ball and it, and it kept in, it rolled down halfway about, it was inside the five metre mark, still in. And the ball boy ran out onto the field and grabbed it. And uh, even the whole crowd uh, starts roaring. And the, and the number eight says to the ball boy, he had passed me the ball, which was forward, but he passed him the ball and they carried on. And the ref just throws his arms up and goes, well, you know, it didn't really affect the game. <laughs> You know, so it's sort of those experiences that um, I live with you, but sort of, um, sort of built, build you because it was just, you know, the whole players were standing with their, you know, arms up going, what the hell is that? Never seen that before. But uh, there's, there's probably lots of other stories similar to that, um, fortunately or unfortunately. Can't uh, believe you're accusing the French of cheating, Aaron. That's unheard of. Absolutely unheard of. I <laughs> <laughs> I've read Ben's book, uh, James, and actually a lot of the stories he tells remind me of loads of stories that we could all share about the French and about how the French approach life and sport, because he talks about his life there quite a bit, as well as playing rugby there, and even though the team he was playing for have an English head coach, it's still very influenced by the French way of doing things, uh, from what I can read, and and the, also the big thing, linking back to Aaron's uh, conversation about the championship, the transient nature of a rugby player who's below the top level of rugby, anywhere in the world probably, is so tenuous. You know, it, it comes out of his book that he, every year he's not sure if he's going to have a job at the end of the season. Even though he seems to have played well, he's getting plaudits, but he's still wondering... Are they going to offer me a lot less money just to stay next year? Am I going to? Am I going to get a contract? So that that comes out of the book as well a lot. So it's a really good book though for anybody who wants to read about rugby. Well, there used to be uh, back in the day. They used. To, sorry, Phil. You're gonna you're gonna go jump in with your thoughts. No, no, no. You carry on. Carry on. I was just gonna say. Um, probably about twenty years ago, there was uh, there was the the Times Student European competition actually, and. Uh, the French used to play in that. The French, Irish, um, English universities all used to play in it. And the Scots, actually. <clears throat> um, remember Loughborough going over to Grenoble, play Toulouse, you know, these types of universities. And it's a shame that doesn't really exist because that would be a cracking competition in addition to the kind of like, super rugby. But, um, yeah, that's digressing a bit. But, Phil, your, your thoughts? You know, I love the idea of that. I, I, yeah, money, I guess, is going to be a major challenge now. But some sort of little European competition at the end of the season. Um, would be at university level would be pretty pretty cool. Um, just jumping back to the the French fixtures as as coaches, what what would your 
planning process? What was your thought process knowing that that's effectively the, the pinnacle of student rugby for, for English students? How, how did you go about putting in place things to, to challenge and, and come away with, um, with you know, wins against a, a pretty strong and, and uh, well-coached side? I, I personally reflect on, um, I guess you'd go in with a framework, right? Most seasons and you'd probably have, um, you'd have the footage from the previous year, maybe the previous two or three years. You'd probably analyse it. You'd try and find out which players might still be in the French student squad and all, all that kind of regular stuff. But I guess for me, the the spark about it was probably the fact that you had um, all the <clears throat> and I thought uh, Paul, Aaron, and Iro did this brilliantly in the last couple of years. And Paul, I'm sure you did something similar with Daz um, to get the victory a couple of years ago. But um, I guess merging all the students from different universities, all the top students from some really good rugby programs around the country, and you know, getting the student input to the game plan and the approach based on some of the best strengths of those programs and that's something that stuck out to me Aaron when you and Iro presented on that I think that's something we probably naturally did a bit um, because we had some really good players but drawing on summarizing that is basically drawing on the students knowledge and experience of tactically um, not necessarily technically or conditioning but very much so tactically how they wanted to do that and seeing students with the ability to to not only um, put in their thoughts on it but lead it on the pitch with a view to being adaptable because they're playing a, um, a group of players they've never played before and on their on on their day can be completely do something off the wall and run from their dead ball area like the French seniors could or capitulate because um, their defense is after three phases is shot away and they get antagonized or they could be equally brilliant so that that adaptability against tactical game plan with some flexibility to try and beat them. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And that, you know, I know it sounds pretty basic, and of course it is, is how do you get some really talented players to work as a team in a pretty short space of time? And I learned a lot about how to coach that and what's the important bits. But like every relationship and team, it's about their understanding of each other and you know, pulling that together around how they play or, you know, what each other's behaviours are as, as as much as you can, given, you know, that this, as you say, it's a pinnacle. They, they're all motivated to make a real difference, not only at training, but on the game, because, you know, they're going to take the video, they're going to put that on the CV. This is going to be not only a memory, but a potentially a stepping stone for a lot of people. And then, that creates different behaviours itself. You know, are they playing for themselves? Are they playing for an England students team to beat France? So, you know, having the time, you know, A, supporting you um, as an assistant, but, you know, and, and having everyone around us, you know, as, as a team of, of, of staff really helped us. And, you know, as, as I've been out of it, the, the, you know, of course, I've got lots of learnings. I've just realised how much more I've got um, out of it uh, from the process of performing under pressure. Um, you know, we we took 23 to France. You can't keep them all on the bench for the last five minutes. How do you integrate that? How do you organise that? You know, even from staff coming together and, and um, 
remotely as volunteers and and you know their whole motivations and fitting everyone in together so it, it's it, it, it's massive to beat a, a like you say you, you the more you try to work the French out the worse you got um, at some stage you just knew you're going to get a hard game and it was going to be right under pressure um, and you know they were they were going to just you know from anything from uh, being quite fluid with the rules to you know you're in a stadium where they had a a, a band in each corner and, and filled six thousand and you know we couldn't even hear ourselves on the radios let alone the line out calls you know you'd spent four or five days sorting your line out calls who had them and you know uh, it was Josh Beaumont calling at the time um, you know he's standing in the middle of the line out and the hooker couldn't hear him so you know the, lots of you know, many learnings, but that's a, you know, a student had, had, had never seen that before and for some of them will never will. I listened to um, a podcast called Rook Off Rugby and it's run by a couple of guys, uh, one of them being Sam Lehman, who played fly half for us for England students. And they interviewed Josh Bragman, who played fly half for us as well for England students. So who are both playing in the championship, linking back to Aaron's chat. And they discussed their experience with England students. And they both said, bearing in mind they're both now professional players, essentially, in the championship, they both said the greatest experience of their life so far in rugby has been playing for England students. The, the experience, so we can talk about it all day about providing this experience for the guys and developing them. And do, we think we're doing a good job, but really it's feedback like that. And it's not feedback on a form that we've asked them to fill in after the event or anything. That's completely unsolicited on a podcast where they were just talking generally about Josh Bragman's life and how he's developed as a rugby player and as a person. And during this conversation, they had at least 10 minutes chat about England students and telling little stories and how good it was. So that, that to me, that's some of the best feedback that, that I've had for the whole programme. And, and also they talked about going to France and all the things that we've just been discussing there. Well, the, the other, I think it's a really good point, Paul. The, the other thing I would mention is, I suppose, when you relate back to what Aaron was saying about bringing a group of players together in a short space of time, you could argue, if you flip the coin, you could argue England students is a bit of a honeymoon programme. You know, players come, they're only there for a short time. You're not there for the week-in, week-out grind of a league competition. You know, you are making some tough calls on selection, but you're not going through that on a weekly basis. Um, so you could argue it's probably somewhat easier given the players turn up and they're passionate to play for their country and everything's enjoyable. But I think if we all reflect on our time in leadership and management roles in the programme, we, you know, we're well aware of that. It, it, it's actually something beyond that that just supplements what, they're, what the brilliant stuff they're doing in their universities already. Like Paul said, it's just something different. Um, and if you go into that realistic, um, you can draw on the squad far more than, you know, in terms of their input to the culture, they drive it, you know, seeing them do that. It's a, it's a bigger picture thing for me rather than just saying, oh, it, you know, they'll enjoy it anyway. It's, um, you still have to make, you still have to build the environment, as in they still have to build the environment in a way that they get the best out of themselves over what is it you know two or three weeks now of prep and match rather than what it was before it used to be trials before christmas and then you might have 
couple of training sessions and when the budget was there it was a bigger program but the reality is it's a smaller program now so you you demand as much on the player's character and uh, ability to um, sustain that environment and build that environment in a really quick short space of time as anything you know as other things as well and I, I just listening to that i think you can fully understand across all the aspirational programs probably certainly the age group ones maybe more than senior counties just just the level of frustration that 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 you know they've been postponed or they've been um kind of put on hold for however long it's going to be and i i, I wouldn't want to be sat at twickenham or wherever it is making those decisions around what's value for money and what that money gets spent on because i think it's so difficult when you say you know you look at how much those programs cost but then you hear feedback like that and, and you go, you know, they are just phenomenal life experiences for the, not just for us as, or not just for the players, but for us as staff that, you know, we will have a friendship for, for many, many, many years because of off the back of that. And, and I think, you know, the, even the, the management get togethers when the guys would come down to London for the, the France game and all that sort of stuff. And you've got people there that were coaches or managers from 15, 20 years ago, I think is fantastic. So yeah, re- really challenging area to, to balance, I guess, that, that aspiration and, and that investment. So. Yeah. And it comes back to my original point it, when you, when you measure these sort of things, you measure them off the numbers in the program and have been through it. Uh, don't, as, you know, as you say, it doesn't always include staff from the wider things, from you know, medics to doctors and managers and you know, where it's helped that career or how it's helped the rugby union. Um, and it may be even you know, the rugby union um, personnel supporting all these programs and the development of that. So it just gets wider. To me, you know, what, what I think, um, and it's harder to measure, is, is if you don't have it, the, the whole wider effect. Um, and I know they look at other countries and say, well, they haven't got those. You know, New Zealand have got rid of, you know, under 16s and some, you know, under 18s and things like that. But, you know, from my home province, um, right down the bottom of New Zealand where I first grew up, the, the aspiration's gone, you know, for young kids, you know, okay, playing under 18s for your county and province is massive to people. And there's people in their 50s like me still talking about that experience of playing county rugby or playing potentially, I, I could get, I could get an England Rose on the thing. And it's, and it's massive. The passion for English rugby is massive. And it's built around a lot of those things there. And, and you know, you can see I'm passionate about it, but I, I, where I've become slightly sceptical in the past about it, I've become an advocate of it, the county system and the whole benefits to it all, because I just see what it's drawing in motivationally to a lot of players in the participation game. I'm conscious of time on this one, but my only counter to that is, do we think as a pathway with so many other aspirational opportunities that that potentially devalues club rugby because everyone just sees club rugby at the bottom of the pathway or the bottom rung of the ladder and it not being particularly special and I want to go and represent x and y and z and actually does does that almost promote uh well it's only club rugby so it doesn't matter if I leave it and and I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate there I, I don't necessarily think that's true although in some individual cases I know it probably is but I'm wondering what your guys thoughts are there does if if 
it ends up being that there's a real reduced opportunity. Does club rugby become more prevalent and more important to those players? I don't know if it makes it more or less important. I think the pathway is always via from, from your school or club, isn't it? So whichever way you go, if you end up playing county rugby or student rugby or any of the aspirational pathways, it all starts with your, usually with your first club. So I think it's still, I, I, I get your point, Phil, though, that some, some guys do drop out when they get pushed to a certain level, don't quite make it, they don't drop back down through the, back to their club or to a club even, and that's a real disappointment because we're losing a lot of good young players that way. And that's something for us all to look at in, who are in rugby to provide uh, sort of different routes to and from uh, aspirational pathways and professional rugby as well. But uh, I think the clubs, when you listen to the England players talk, and they still mention, don't they, in interviews, their original club, they always talk about the school that they've gone through. And a lot of them, if they've been to a university, will talk uh, very passionately about the university they played for as well. So I think all of these different areas are equally, um, it's just, I think they the big thing is making sure that we don't lose people out of the game who, who can, uh, you know, who, who will enjoy and get something out of the game and the game will get a lot out of them as well. Great stuff. Paul, we're going to stick with you. Uh, what were you looking at this week? What was your piece of content? Yeah, uh, so I listened to a podcast this week. I came across a podcast a few months ago uh, called The Man Down Podcast uh, by Jamie Clements, who... And the reason I came across it was Jamie was a Durham student and I coached him a few years ago. Uh, a really nice guy, good rugby player. Um, I, was, I think I was in touch with him via LinkedIn, but that's all really. And uh, he, he runs this podcast, Man Down pod, Podcast, and he calls uh, his strapline is the anti-man up. So it's, t- it's talking about mental health generally in life. But quite a lot of the people he interviews have a sports sort of um, background or they're using sports to develop awareness around mental health. But the guy he interviewed on this is called Dan Guinness, <coughs> who's an ex-semi-pro rugby player. And he runs a thing called the Good Lad Initiative. And the reason I happened on this one was because um, rugby clubs, just like society, have problems with behaviour. Um, and a lot of the stuff I've listened to during lockdown talk about um, culture. And I, I often wonder, what, what do they mean by culture in a rugby club or in a team or in a business? And I think we all have our own idea about that. And what this guy, Dan Guinness, does is look at culture within organisations. So they do stuff, it's mainly with boys and young men. And they normally get called in and they run workshops to try and explore all the taboos and the different things that make men us as we are, you know, where we don't talk about our feelings, we don't talk about uh, ill health. One of the stories Dan tells is about the two men on the golf course and they have a a great day out, loads of chat, get back and one of the men's wife says, oh, did you talk about um, John's... Uh, wife she's been ill lately and the guy says no didn't mention that or did you did he mention about his daughter who's been having trouble at school no we didn't talk about that did he talk about he's been to the hospital no we didn't talk about in other words men don't talk about 
stuff like that and it can create uh, toxic sort of relationships so I'm the reason I was looking at it and listening to this is because we want to create more inclusive environments in all of our clubs we want them to be accepting of all people but how do we do that how can we make them like that how do we stop them just being everybody being the same and it's just a click and you know not somebody who's slightly different ends up leaving because they don't feel comfortable in the environment and that's there's Dan Guinness that's what he does on the workshops and his this good lad initiative they go around and they they try and create a safe environment for people to have discussions about uh, dating about feelings about mental health about sexuality whatever it is really things that like i've just said that blokes don't generally talk about they just keep it to themselves and uh, and it's interesting because obviously most of it is coming from a sports background he's done quite a lot of research in fiji and argentina where i think i, I haven't been to fiji or argentina but the impression i have is there are men are that, that they will have quite a macho sort of outlook on life uh, even more so than maybe european men so he's done a lot of work with young men there to try and get them to understand that people are different and that people should be accepted for whoever they are so it was really interesting that anybody who who would like to listen to that. i mean two reasons i thought well we want to have these places because it's the right thing to do to be inclusive we want our rugby clubs and our teams to be inclusive because it's the right thing to do but Actually, I think there's a performance benefit to it as well because we're probably missing out on some good people. And I don't just mean playing-wise. It could be uh, volunteers. It could be referees. It could be coaches. It could be physios. All of those people who make a rugby club or any organisation tick, we might be losing out on some brilliant people because there's a certain culture, if you like, that isn't isn't accepting of them as people so i think it's the right thing to do but i also think it might have benefits now before you asked me i did i did have a think about um what what do i think is what do i think is culture so i i thought for me it's what you hear what you see and what you feel on a daily basis in the environment you're in what i'm thinking about is that should be positive and all of them things, sometimes it's, it's, a lot of it's negative, isn't it? So you don't want it to be like that. So how can we make what we hear, what we feel and what we see positive in an environment? And that will be a good culture. Because people talk about culture as if there's only good culture. But we all know there's not. There's bad culture as well. What, what would that look like for you, Paul, at Durham? So within the, the about 7,000 teams that you have on, on <laughs> Um, how how would you go about establishing that within the kind of ones, twos, threes, fours, or even within the colleges? Uh, how, how, you know, it's a big old program. How, how do you ensure that you're not falling into those pitfalls? Fortunately, I'm not in charge of it all. So, I, but uh, I do. I actually look after the development side. So that's the threes, fours, fives, and freshers. And uh, there's myself and four coaches who do that. Obviously, under the head coach, uh, director of rugby, Alex Key. But yeah, it is an interesting one, Phil, because the, the colleges are a different thing because they're each, although we're all one rugby club, they all have their own little club within a club. So we don't have a lot of um, contact with the colleges. Um, 
So I can only really impact on the teams I'm involved with. And we do every year, we try and come up with different reasons. That actually what I thought about when I was listening to this guy is, are we the right people to be setting the culture as in the coaches and the management? Is it, should it be done by, maybe facilitated by somebody independent, but set by the players? And I have always thought that in the back of my mind, I can't actually provide evidence that that's the right way to go. But I just always feel and I felt um, when we have had what I would consider a good culture within the club and things have been very positive and there hasn't been any issues that I've been aware of and that although you have friendship groups, that's not necessarily a clique, is it really? A, A clique would be where people are excluded just because they're not in that group. But when when I've considered it to being good, I feel that it's generally, it's led by the players and the senior players in whatever area. So that might be their first team captain or the club captain, but it might be the third team senior players. So there might be a group of third, fourth years playing for the third team who set the culture for the whole of the development sides. So if they set a good, good culture, um, then, then the rest of the teams might have a good culture. But how do we impact that on that coaches? I think the big thing for us is for us to set a good example. So it's no good us doing and saying and um, displaying things that go against the culture that you would want in the club uh, because then the players would pick up on that and then it would, it, they would think, well, just a minute, we're trying to do this and the coaches aren't doing it. So, so I think for me, the way it would look good is if the players led on it and they, they sort of were the driving force for it, but the coaches could then facilitate and direct it and also show good leadership amongst, uh, in, in amongst all that. Question to, to everyone. Do you think that is why there's been a massive push from universities to break the, the induction type cycle? Um, because ultimately, if, if you've got players leading a culture and it's a, well, I, you know, I got hazed or I got inducted in a really mean, you know, horrible way three, four years ago. I'm, I'm going to repeat that cycle. Do you think that's the danger and that's what the universities have a concern over? It is, I think player empowerment is fantastic, but as Paul says, only if they're good people and we want to avoid that. I'd, I'd be interested in what your experiences of universities putting, putting those kind of systems in place are. In my experience, it's massive. Um, and we've um, we've had our own issues around things. We've been got involved with this good lad initiative, um, never okay, um, and, a, and a lot. You know, if you look at the context of where we are, um, we're 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 a hub for you know um, a whole variation of of race, religion, um, you know, sexual preference, um, and in a in an age where you know a lot of people are stepping out of control from their parents or from that school and taking control of their own life, um, there's the history element um, and the around you know all that sort of stuff around um, the, the bad stories about it. But there's also you know what we've found is is you know we we got rid of all what we call fresher stuff. So we we. We don't do any inductions. We've banned them for a number of years, and we look at a quite a bit of inclusion. And it, it took a while, but in the third year, they, they, those first years go, 
now I had such a good experience, I'm now going to pass it on. So the good experience get passed on down below. I'm going to include them. I'm going to welcome them in and soon. But what dawned at us and we knew it is because I got a bad experience in my first year, it's my shot to do it again. A wee bit of that seniority. And it's fortunately, have we got rid of it all? I hope so. Because you never know. We're dealing with, you know, Paul's got more. They've got 900. We've got 400 club members. You know, we like to control. But I think, going back to Paul, it's education and awareness for everybody. We're all involved. Even for uh, us older and experienced guys need the education around all this stuff that's going on a bit. You know, I'm hope um, I'm not showing unconscious bias. Um, but I may be, and I need to understand that a bit more. I need to understand a bit more about Black Lives Matter. I need to understand about how people operate. And we've got to, it's a continuous process going through. But um, on, on a positive side, you know, we, we've got to look at, you know, rugby as a stereotype and, you know, we, we've got to try and uh, minimise that. But, you know, our experiences, we've we, we got a culture uh, in a positive way where our, all our players got on well as a club. But because they got on really well, they all stuck together around the university, which creates a, a big issue because you've got... 10 guys, all from different teams, having a great time, having a big laugh, and they're massive big guys. And they cause, it's interesting, they cause fear for some people. They see that as quite threatening because of a culture where they've all got together as a club. So um, in summary to that, we're all involved. We all need to be educated. It is hell of an important for us right through. Can it can make or break our clubs and their careers, but it's just the right thing to do as well. James, how would that look for you in a professional sporting environment in terms of the the, the programmes that you advise or work with or that you're aware of? And obviously the Athlete A documentary has sparked a, a huge amount of discussion around um, culture and behaviours of coaches within high-performance environments. What, what are your thoughts on how how we tackle those types of issues there? Uh, well, I won't comment on anything that's in the media right now because of the political nature of it and the, the challenges that certain sports are going through. You mentioned athlete A. I mean, it's really topical at the moment, but it, I think it has been for a while. You know, Aaron said it's massive, massive within rugby and student rugby, but it's massive. It's massive in the sense that I think how you define that, I'd say it's, it's importance can't be underestimated in terms of culture. Um, whether it's student rugby or a world-class programme or but I think your point there Phil is really the pertinent point for me there is that and it also connects to what Paul was saying about role modelling I guess the the coaches and the coaching behaviour and the balance between um, who less who leads or um, helps to evolve grow develop a culture within a programme per se um, clearly coaches senior leaders, directors of performance have a huge role in setting the tone and also role modelling and checking and challenging each other on practice and coaching process. Um, I guess we're all, we've all got our own coaching philosophy, but yeah, in answer to your question, Phil, or your point, it, it's certainly, it's been, in, it's been in the press, certain examples for quite some time, hasn't it? And um, culture health checks and what we've called walk the floors have been implemented in Olympic and Paralympic programs, which is basically where an independent panel of people would go 
um, it, it came from a concept in the military where you have an independent group of people going to another unit to not only um, look, you know, have a look at how things are done, but also learn from that process and gain feedback from the process from, you know, the equivalent, I guess, would be Aaron, you and your team going up to Durham and spending time with Paul and Alex and the, the senior players and seeing how they do things up there and you giving some feedback and reciprocally learning which I think has become a really, really good thing. And it's a real positive thing um, in the sense that if you take it as a positive opportunity for people coming in to have a look at how you do things, that can only be a good thing. However, it can be seen as a bit off steady um, and, you know, put under scrutiny a bit. So I won't go into the kind of detail of that. Needless to say, I was going to just reflect on what Paul was saying, because I think relating it back to rugby, Phil, I think my view would be um, the players should and hopefully you'd set the environment where they feel able to and can uh, drive the culture. But I think in a university setting, those senior players, and my, my view would be the senior players and the, final, the finalists or the final year can be the, the integral piece to that as well. Within that, we'd all, we'd all have our own views. I think we've all worked together, so we probably quite all bought into a similar kind of philosophy of how we lead or want to um, you know, delegate to others to lead the culture um but you can't you can't ever you can't probably ever prevent there being outliers out there especially with the club sizes that you guys work with um, and i've worked with in the past but um, if you have a senior playing group that um, fosters attitudes like um, everyone can be themselves you know you can be your own man or woman within that and you know have your own views, ideas, thoughts, approaches. If, if, if we have initiations and other initiatives like that that make people feel as though they conform, I think, I think generationally people have, you know, I don't know, you guys tell me because I haven't been close to the uh, university rugby club for some time, but I think have things changed on that front in the sense that it's not all about the initiation and conforming to what you need to be. People can still be themselves as well as, have a common goal and common purpose in terms of Bucks rugby or, you know, you're in a team, so you should have a common purpose and goal you'd hope, but as well as that, you can be yourself within it. Sorry, there's a fair few points there. But, um... No, I think you made some great points about the outliers. It goes back to a conversation we had on this pod um, a number of weeks ago around how you deal with what we define as mavericks and, and they, there's there's no kind of agreed definition on that but often as Aaron mentioned you know your bias means you group individuals against or you know through the lens in which you see them and that can often then exclude people outside of that that have a different mentality or have a different approach to things and I, I guess or you can almost take England cricket kind of mentality of just lots of eyes and I know they use that from a selection perspective but I do think that that's really important in the diversity and the, the, the kind of the range of lenses that you have within your staff and your coaching team and even your senior you know senior player group if, if you run one that that every perspective is being looked at so you're not all you're not all excluding the same type of individuals I think that would be um, not not that you'd exclude them deliberately, but I, I think you, you'd get the point I'm making there. But actually, that you're aware of that bias and, and trying to change that, or or at least you know it's covered by somebody else. I don't think you can be all things to all people, but if you've got three or four viewpoints, then hopefully that would all be um, collated in that. So I've I've had conversations with coaches who have coached at 
um, top level universities, but also in recent years may have gone to another university, um, maybe a lower tier of say Bucks rugby, but then the university has an aspiration for that university, the, the university rugby program to be a performance program inverted commas and raise the standards. But actually given the history of the club in, in, in a particular example, might be more heavily weighted on the social side of, you know, um, the club rather than the performance side. So I think it's, um, yeah, some clubs, some student clubs, I guess the reality is students probably, some might just um, say certain things about students because that's what they think. But actually, I think we've all got a, we've all got a role to continually raise the standards of the cultures within the clubs. And hopefully those things are changing based on the fact that, I guess it goes full circle to Aaron's point about championship. If the players from student programmes are going into professional rugby and are impressing with their standards, also with their approach on and off the field in terms of their cultural awareness, that's only a good thing for the student game to raise the standards of all, all kind of universities, you'd hope. But then maybe that's an ideal world. No, I think you're bang on. Um, yeah, I think that's every part of the pathway has a responsibility to the next part will be on to, to send them good people and, and the kind of people that they need. So yeah, superb. That comes full circle quite nicely. So we will uh, wrap that one up there. Um, gents, anything that caught your eye in the coming week that you would recommend for people to have a look at? Any thoughts on that? Well, there was one just a couple of nights ago that I, I tapped into and it's on the uh, Coach Logic platform and it was uh, a webinar by the Ealing Academy guys who Ealing Academy, Brunel University, Ty Sturry, Tim Newhouse, Glenn Townsend. And what they're talking about is Gen Z, Generation Z. So I'm probably the oldest, I'm a baby boomer apparently, and then there's all these different generations. So Gen Z are people, the guys who would be coming and girls who would be coming through universities now. And how do they how do they communicate? And uh, they, they've got like a, a really good infograph, which shows that most of them interact mainly with video and social media. And quite the clever thing about what they were doing is they are using Coach Logic in the video platform to not just analyze games, but to um, communicate with them as well. So it, it something maybe coaches, particularly universities, could look at because it could help you in regards to not just with your players uh, communicating with them, but also communicating with potential players. Because if you're sending them emails and traditional letters and stuff like that, they're probably not going to read them. But if there was a video on social media about your program, they're more likely to interact with that. So they might be interested. So it's just, I thought it was quite interesting from that. So it, although it was the analyst, Tim, who led the, a lot of it, you think it's going to be about rugby analysis. It wasn't. It was more about how to communicate with these young, this young group of people who uh, we obviously want to attract to our universities. So that, that might be one that's interesting for people. I had one more thing, um, Phil, that drills are back. <laughs> <laughs> that, middle, that middle shelf behind me is all about books, books on drills. So uh, <laughs> give us a shout <laughs> on the email. <laughs> <laughs> love that I've got a couple just to throw out there so UK Coaching are doing a back to coaching teaching games for understanding session with Tom Hartley 
that's on Friday the 7th of August from 12 till 1 uh, and then there's a very short video that I found this morning so uh, Rio Ferdinand and Owen Farrell talking mental health for heads up hashtag sound of support so that's a good little watch um, gents thank you very much for your time uh, I'm going to round up the roundup so we hope you found it useful thank you to my three guests for their excellent insight Links to all the content discussed will be shared in the podcast verb. Please subscribe, like, and share. And as we ride off into the sunset, I'd like to wish you all the best. Stay safe and go well.